0: So my wife actually has a, a a beautiful thing that she we bring lollipops to the games to just as a reminder, you know what, your kids just want you to watch them. And when they come off the field, they don't want you to go through what should have happened and what you did good or what you did bad. It's just like, did you have fun? <laughs> I love watching you play. And what's something that you learned? I'm Tina Brown, and you're listening to TBD.
1: If you want to understand how fierce a competitor Abby Wambach was during her legendary soccer career as the co-captain of the U.S. women's soccer team, you need only focus on one game, a 2010 World Cup qualifier against Mexico. Wambach, whose head was considered a lethal scoring machine, collided hard with a Mexican player. With blood cascading from her forehead, Wambach had a trainer staple her head back together and finish the match. Over the course of her career, she went on to score more international goals than any other player, female or male, in the history of soccer. After Wambach led the team to its third World Cup title, no less a fan than Barack Obama declared, this team taught all America's children that playing like a girl means you're a badass. And when Wambach finally hung up her cleats, after winning two Olympic gold medals and being named FIFA World Player of the Year, the president proclaimed her the GOAT, the greatest of all time. But her post-playing days have not always been easy. One of only a handful of openly gay elite athletes, Womback has faced public struggles with addiction, depression and a divorce from her first wife. But she's battled back and found love again with Christian mummy blogger Glennon Doyle. Womback has just published a new book called Wolfpack, a stirring call to arms for girls and women to stop being timid, obedient and unquestioning In favor of being bold, defiant, and yes, hard headed.
2: If I asked you how many subscriptions you have, would you be able to list all of them and how much you're paying? If you would have asked me this question before I started using Rocket Money, I would have said
0: yes. But let me tell you, I would have been so wrong. I can't believe how many I had and all the money I was wasting.
2: Wondery, rocketmoney.com slash Wondery.
0: Abby
1: Wombach, welcome to TBD. Thank you for having me, Tina. And I'm so pleased that you're wearing your sparkling high-top Kristen Louboutin sneakers. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. You know, um, these are, the, or in fact, the sneakers that I gave the Barnard speech uh, last May in, and uh, they brought me luck then, so I'm, I'm hoping they bring me similar luck now.
1: Well, I'm sure they will, and we're going to talk about that speech. But before we do, I want to go back to that iconic day, the World Cup Championship in 2015 that was the most watched soccer game in U.S. history. Tell me what that
0: game meant to you. <sighs> well, when I finally got that medal around my neck, the elusive World Cup medal, it felt like a completion. Uh, it felt like a good, a good exclamation point to the end of an amazing career, one that I had many successes and many failures, one that I traveled the world, made some of the best friends, and pushed my limits and became the person that, um, that I was really proud of. And I think uh, whenever you get a chance to stand on the top podium, however that might look to you in your own life, because I realize not everybody gets to play professional football, I think that feeling the full context of it and understanding that when you were five or when you were 10 or when you were 20, all of those parts of your life were such an important piece to the final puzzle.
1: Well, then you went, of course, last May when you walked in those sparkly high tops of yours and gave that speech, uh, you know, to Barnard, the graduates of Barnard at Radio City Music Hall in New York. Your address really blew the roof off, and it really went viral. What inspired you to write that speech? And, of course, the speech is now really the basis for your new
0: book, Wolfpack. Yeah. The inspiration for this speech kind of was born out of this experience I found myself having on a stage standing next to some other amazing athletes. We were at the ESPYs. Kobe Bryant was, was to my left and Peyton Manning was to my right. And I was on stage and I just remember feeling like, wow, people are seeing me, this woman who's worked hard, of course, achieved a lot, of course, but they're seeing me as an equal to these other accomplished men. And I think that I sat on that stage feeling very grateful for the experience. Like it was like this moment, like we women, we had finally made it. Mm-hmm. And then I had the experience of when I walked off stage and all of us would um, get into our cars and drive back to our hotels. And I had this really big moment. I realized that we three were walking into very different retirements. And quite frankly, for lack of any other better word, I just got really pissed. Because you felt that they had much bigger rewards? Well, of course they – were given a massive salary and were able to make a massive fortune on their craft. And women were not there yet in the professional sports world and beyond, by the way. Uh, Every industry suffers from the similar problem of pay equity. And, you know, I was lying in bed the night of the ESPYs. I was lying in bed and I realized I was a part of the problem. Being on the national team offered me privilege. Being invited in certain rooms offered me privilege that not many other women get. And I just felt like I spent so much of my time on the national team getting some of these privileges, but not using them to really change the game. And so that's kind of how this this entire speech was born out of.
1: But and
2: tell me,
0: for those who
1: obviously haven't read the speech or not yet read your book, yeah. Tell me what you felt was the most important piece of that content.
0: Well, I I had to get really honest with myself about what happened on that stage. Why was I feeling so grateful? And then what happened when I walked off the stage to um, change that gratitude to anger? And I think that our world is really confusing for marginalized people. Um, especially for women because so much of the power structures and so much of these, these rules that all of us operate under are and have been written for and by men. And so when women and and people of color and any kind of marginalized person, when they're trying to find their way in the world, it's really difficult because there's these understandings of how we're all supposed to, like, interact in our daily lives that in order for things to become more equal – Those old rules have to actually be turned into new ways of action. One of my favorite
1: passages of the book is, give me the effing ball. Give me the job. Give me equal pay. Give me
0: the promotion. Give me the microphone. Give me the Oval Office. Yeah, I love that. Yeah. The other thing that women really struggle with is demanding what they want and what they deserve. They also don't know how to do that. I mean, in terms of even if they want it and feel it and
1: feel they should be voicing it. There aren't really any ways of being that tells
0: women how to particularly do that. Well, here's the thing. There is no, like, way to do it. You just feel what you want, and then you say, this is what I want. Demanding the ball, demanding what you want is a gift, that you are born with. You are allowed to do these things. You know, the, the women's national team gave me a unique perspective because we women were like in this ecosystem, this little bubble. We played soccer, of course, but we also were amongst other badass women who didn't operate all the time under the same unwritten rules that the rest of the world does. Of course, some of this
1: also was about your evolving understanding of your sexuality, right? I mean, and, and and when did you first understand that you were gay and how did that integrate into your evolution
0: as a woman of confidence? I grew up in a very uh, Catholic, Irish Catholic family. I'm the youngest of seven kids. You know, chaos wasn't common, though with with you, people would think that with seven kids it would be. But You had to kind of follow the leaders, my mom and dad, and follow my sister, Beth, who is the eldest. And I know that they did the very best they could, and all of them are amazing human beings, amazing people. I am who I am in so many ways because of them. But I think growing up in a smaller community and being very confused about what it meant to be or have feelings that I was having uh, and what it meant to to be going to a Catholic high school and, and the... The relationship between God and my my mother and religion and myself, I think that having some of these homosexual tendencies and thoughts as a child before I even ever acted on them um, and being involved in the Catholic faith for so many years— I was really confused, you know, later in my life and in in my early adulthood, I realized that I had to make a choice whether I was going to choose myself or God, religion or my mom. And I made a choice very early on that I would rather lose all of those things than myself. Uh, And I think that that's because I was very confident in who I was and what I wanted. Do you think that um, sport also became um, a refuge in some ways for your uh,
1: for those troubles?
0: Yeah, I think so. I, of course, I think that getting into your body rather than uh, always just being in your in your head about stuff was essential for me. You know, I just love to play. I love to to have fun, and and that is such a central theme in my life. And of course, being around other people. Um, that is not my family, that would not hold judgment against me, was really important. Um, and then, you know, sports was a, a unique way for me to meet all kinds of people. Yes, some of them are gay. Yes, some of them came from different parts of of the country, of the world. And that, for me, has been my greatest gift, is just to be exposed to so many different kinds of people because uh, it, once you realize um, we are all part of the one human family— um, there really is no other people's children, and I think that that understanding really did come from playing soccer and eased a lot of some of the troubles that I I have actually had to go through in order to become the person that I am.
1: And who were your inspirational uh, role models? You know, in your realization that you were going to be an exceptional soccer player, whose whose game were you obsessed with?
0: Ooh. I mean, I had pictures of Christine Lilly and Mia Hamm up on my wall. I think everybody knows who Mia is. But this one player, her name is Michelle Akers. Uh, She actually—I never got a chance to play with her because when I came on the team, she had already retired. But she looked like me in terms of our body size, and she played the game like I wanted to play the game. She basically personified every one of my dreams, and the other side of that too was that I listened to the way that her her former teammates talked about her, how they revered her, not just her talent, but the person that she was, and how she really raised the level of everybody around you. That's kind of my definition of of great leadership is how well they are able to to raise the level of the people around them. Did you ever forge a personal connection with her? Oh yeah, I know I know Michelle well now, and she had some struggles at the end of her career with concussions and some and some physical limitations with having Played for so many years, the way she played, so I'm sure I'm going to have some sense of a future <laughs> in well, terms of. I mean, you're you're, you're famous for your headers, yeah, right? And, yeah. and what is that going to do for you later? Is that are you concerned about that? Yeah, of course I'm concerned about that. I think that anybody who has had any concussions and and doesn't have any concern for that, you know, that, that worries me for them. So yes, I'm I'm donating my brain to science when I'm when I'm gone from this earth and. Um, Hopefully I can be an active participant in the creation of science, whether it be through pharmaceutical drugs or some sort of treatment program protocol for concussions and making sure that the game and the spirit of the game keeps everybody safe but doesn't ruin the beauty of it. It's a very complicated and politicized discussion and issue that we talk about in terms of how young is it too young for your ch- child to start heading the soccer ball? What is the right age to let your kids participate in tackle football? Nobody knows those answers. Uh, and I and I feel lucky to not have had more concussions. I think I only had two concussions. One was on the field and the other was, was off the field, stupid childhood shenanigans, and uh, And so, you know, time will tell. Um,
1: You have had your own struggles with addiction, though, through, you know, which you came through. Do you, uh, in any sense, ally those with, you know, the physical challenges of being a player?
0: Well, I think that at the end of my career, I had a lot of things happening at one time. We had just won the World Cup, and I was going through um, a really tumultuous and and traumatic for myself divorce. Um, I was basically... Grieving the death of a career and also the death of a relationship with everything combined and, and leaving this career really was the most terrifying thing ever. Because well, it had not,
1: driven your life, I mean, from
0: the word, you know, for years. Yeah, I mean, it's all I knew. And at 35 years old, I had done this thing for 30 years and I was walking away from it. Though I was excited about the future, it was also it was one of the most daunting things I've ever experienced. Um, thought about and so because
1: I mean the way it must have changed your days was extraordinary and presumably you trained pretty much every day so what happened you know the day after you retired did you just stay in bed what happened
0: yeah I basically took two years off um two years off of actually training or or doing anything physical with my body I needed the mental break I needed to really physically recover and you know I'm glad that I did that mostly because I feel like it is now my choice You know, when you do professional sports, there's so much external pressure, external motivation for you to succeed, whether it be through money or through playing time or through uh, being the one that gets chosen for the team or that gets chosen to score the goal or whatever it is. I feel like as I started to progress in my career, and in my retirement, I had to really figure out how to internally motivate myself. So I've done a lot of deep work over the last couple of years, and I'm still in the process of figuring out this fitness thing. I mean, it is the hardest thing to get up and, and motivate myself to stay physically active. Do you ever play soccer just for fun? Well, it's interesting. It's no, it's no longer fun for me because the way I remember playing, the way I remember it being fun was when I was able to move forward quicker around the field i was more agile and i wasn't like terrified of like injuring myself like i am now and then when you put yourself in a environment where it's a lot of pickup where other people don't really know how to play the game as well and they know that i'm on the field so some of the guys are trying to two-foot tackle me and you know send me up into the bleachers it's not as fun it's just not as fun i'm not as good so it's just not as fun. <laughs> you too much of a perfectionist. Too. Exactly. Too competitive.
1: Of course, one of the big things that happened to you in 2016 was, I mean, you fell madly right. in love, right, with your second wife, Glennon Doyle. Uh, She's a Christian blogger who wrote the best-selling book Love Warrior about her marriage to her then-husband. This Mm -hmm. must have been this just kind of epic connection you made. I mean, what happened when you two met?
0: Yeah, she was releasing a book, I was releasing a book, and we found ourselves in the backstage waiting area to go up to the dais. and. I mean, it was 10 minutes, and it was that was it. Like, that's all that it took. What happened in those
1: 10 minutes? Tell me. I mean, uh, what Honestly, was it about her that just made this incredible connection for you?
0: Uh, these are all very good questions, and I wish that I had better answers, but I don't know. I mean, it was some spiritual understanding. Like, it was as if my body and my soul— and my mind, like, came together and it saw hers all together. And it was like, oh, yeah, we were meant to be doing this whole thing, this whole time down here together, but we just had never met. And I know that sounds so woo-woo and weird. but It oh, sounds wonderful. I yeah, think. I mean, it, it, it's the storybook fairy tale of falling in love. And um, and, and
1: were you then together after that or were there obstacles?
0: Yeah, well, we, we actually didn't see each other um, for months after because both of us had— Different lives. And uh, I lived in Portland at the time and she was in Naples, Florida. And we had personal things that we actually had to sort through, you know, her and her ex-husband, me and my ex-wife. Um, we had to get divorced. I was in the process of it. And she is the same thing. And also she has and, and her ex-husband, Craig, they had three children. So it was very complicated at first. But you know when, But you just felt this was, this was meant to be and you pursued. Yeah. It, it's surreal. And when I look back on it, I'm amazed. And so, I mean, I thank her and I thank um, the universe every single day for the chance meeting. I mean, I get retroactive stress thinking about, oh my gosh, what if, like, I didn't go to that event? <laughs> or what if she didn't show up? Or what if... Um, and how has
1: it changed your life? How has being with Lennon changed your life?
0: I mean, it's changed everything. It's changed my complete perspective on the way that I pursue my days, the way that I think about my life in terms of what are wins and what are losses. I understand you officially become a soccer mom. Yes. (laughs) And how's that? Becoming a soccer mom, well, first of all, I became like an insta-mom. So it was like, boom, here are your three kids. This is amazing. And then the added bonus to being the mom of these two small children, these two daughters, Chase doesn't play soccer, is that these girls play soccer. And they played rec soccer, which was amazing. So first first year out, I, I coached them along with their dad, Craig, and we had so much fun, but you know, I was talking to Glennon, I'm like, you know, I think that they can raise their level. I think rec soccer is amazing and it's important to get kids out and to get them to understand what soccer is all about or, or sport is all about. But I felt like there was more that these girls could achieve. So we pushed them into the club travel soccer demographic and they're just thriving, you know. But the problem is that it is really interesting sitting on the sidelines of some of these soccer games. Parents suck. They just suck. <laughs> They're the worst. They're the worst fans. They they do not know how to keep their mouth shut. Our uh, the the parents on our team are amazing, um, but you know they can't stop complaining to the referees. And I'll be honest, that's probably more more on me. Um, I need to be a better role model for my children. Don't complain to the referees. So my wife actually has a a, a beautiful thing that she we bring lollipops to the games to just. As a reminder, you know what? Your kids just want you to watch them. And when they come off the field, they don't want you to go through all the X's and O's or what should have happened and what you did good or what you did bad. It's just like, did you have fun? I love watching you play. And what's something that you learned? And those are those are basically the, the extent of our questions and the, the conversations that we have with our kids when they step off the pitch.
2: Have you ever covered a carpet stain with a rug, ignored a leaky faucet? Pretended your half-painted living room is supposed to look like that? Well, you're not alone. We've all got unfinished home projects, but there's an easier way. When you download Thumbtack, it's easier to care for your home from top to bottom. Pull out your phone and adjust a few taps. You can search, chat, and book highly rated pros right in your neighborhood. Plus, you'll know what to tackle next, because Thumbtack is the app that shows you what to do, who to hire, and when. So say goodbye to all those unfinished home projects, and say hello to caring for your home the easier way. Download Thumbtack and start a project today. Say hello to a new era of mental health care.
1: I think a lot of parents would love to know, like, how should they
0: support their kids when they're playing soccer? What what do you want? What should they be doing on the sidelines? Well, you got to figure out what motivates them and what inspires them. Um, We ask our daughters, first of all, do you want us to be communicating on the sidelines? And if so, how and when are the best times to do that? So, for instance, Tish. Tish loves positive reinforcement. Emma Emma does not love to be criticized at all. So just ask your kids. Do you like it when mommy or daddy cheers for you on the sidelines? Um, Do you like it when mommy or daddy gives you instruction? What do you want? What do you need to hear from the sidelines to know that you're fully loved and supported no matter what?
1: I'm very interested in you as a young woman, a young child, really. Where do you think that drive and aggression came from, Abby?
0: You know, that's so interesting because... Had it not been for the Barnard speech and the writing of it and the thinking about my life from a whole long perspective, I would have probably said to you, you know, I grew up and I had four brothers. And so they treated me like one of their own. And I think I actually even wrote that in the early parts of my speech. And my wife Glennon said, Abby, don't you see how patriarchal that is? And I thought about it for a long time, and yes, my brothers helped, allowed me the access to uh, my aggressiveness and my physicality, but so did my sisters. I mean, my sisters were the ones that went on to college and play sports in college. Um, They were ten and eleven years older than me, and so they were actually the people that walked the walk before I did and and played with me outside and and raised me on so many levels so I would definitely say my full family and to be mindful that boys are not only out there or the boys in my life were not the reasons or just the reasons why I was able to have or achieve any level of of physical excellence and who was the bigger influence on you do you think your mother or your father I think that my dad's genes were a really big influence. He was the athlete of the family. Uh, and I think my mom is the one that championed me throughout the whole of my life and kept me on course and made sure that I was on the right teams and made sure I went to the right um, high school. And, and um, you know, I'm very much like my mom, very stubborn and proud. What is your relationship today with your mom? I struggled a long time after coming out and I struggled a long time to try and relate to my mom. How did she handle that? Well, it was hard for her. You know, I, it was in the late 90s, um, early 2000s, when I finally was able to, to say the words and come out to my mom. Uh, and because of her background, because of her upbringing, because of the way that she has operated her whole life, it was really hard for her. It was hard for her to accept the fact that this child who – was kind of famous, um, was outward into the world. You know, my mom, a lot of her stress probably came from what it looked like from the outside. And And how how old were you when you told her? I was 23, I think, 22 years old, 22 maybe. And, um, And now it's really interesting because my relationship, the way I feel about my mom, has changed so much because here's the thing, so many people want to argue with parents and the way that they are and how they don't accept them and all that. And I get it. My story is different in that I think I have now taken ownership of my own self and really truly embrace the fact that I had to go through some hard stuff to become the person that I am. And though I had hard feelings, I don't want to give my power away, even to my mom, about Something as natural as sexuality, and the other side of it too is that now I have children. I understand that parenting is really hard, mm-hmm. and it's not perfect. And I'm sure in the end of my life, I'm gonna look back and think, "Oh, I made some mistakes. I'm gonna have to make make some amends or or make some sincere apologies to our children." And I'll for sure do that. Uh, and so I've I've softened a bunch, and I just I want my mom to know that I'm thankful for the person that she is because the person she is has helped me become the person that I am.
1: So when let's get back to to the messages of your book. I mean, what do you think are the three big takeaways that you want young women to take from this book?
0: Well, I think that making failure – failure is a really tough thing for women because in order for women to succeed, we have this belief system that we have to be perfect – And, you know, men are all over there just taking risk after risk after risk, not worrying about whether they fail or not because they have had an opportunity to fail, to figure out what failing is like and then, right? Women are so terrified of failing because there's this unwritten rule, right, that if women, if you fail, then you're out of the game. But for me, the new rule is when you fail, that means you're finally in the game because failure, especially for my life, um, I know that all the biggest failures of my life have been the moments when I've been able to actually grow, gain, and make actual positive change. Um, I think championing each other is really important and really hard for other women because if there's only one or what we all perceive as only one seat at, given to us at the, at, at the table, then we all feel like we have to fight for that one seat. That is a structure that has been set up by the patriarchy to keep women only going after that one seat. How about this, right? I think Ava DuVernay said, rather than trying to break the glass ceiling, I'm just going to go over here and build my own house. Mm -hmm. I think that that is so, so important. And also, how about we try to take some of those seats back for ourselves that the men sit in, um, and then the final one I would just say is um, – and I think it's the most important one, the one that I felt really connected to throughout my whole career is this idea of being in a pack and and finding your own wolf pack is essential to life, whether it be in your community, whether it be at work, whether it be in your home. Um, women have to embrace the challenge and the the charge of leadership in every avenue and every space of their life uh, and 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 finding other people that are doing doing life with you I mean that's what makes it so much more worth it you know winning the championships and winning the gold medals and and having the career I did was amazing but I don't value those things more than the friendships and the the relationships that I was able to build during those times
1: well Abby Wambach you're a great leader and I thank you so much for sharing it with us
0: oh thanks so much for having me
1: You've been listening to TBD with me, Tina Brown, brought to you by Wondery. You can subscribe to TBD on Apple Podcasts, follow us on Spotify, or keep up with us however you listen to podcasts. And please don't keep TBD all to yourself. Tweet about it, Instagram it, or, you know, try having an actual conversation with a real person. You can also rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. That's a great way to spread the word. Liked what you heard today? There's more where that came from. Check out my interview with the writer-director of Transparent, Jill Soloway. It's available on Wondery.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. TBD is produced by Tina Brown, Kathleen Russo, Julie Subrin, Karen Compton, Justine Giannino, and Michael Solomon. Original theme music is composed by Forrest Gray. Come back next time for more smart people on TBD.